Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, gold prices are continuing their surge. You know, I think it is the the biggest seven-day rally in the price of gold uh, since 2011. But as big as the rise has been in U.S. dollars, and we're still below 1300 though, we're about just under 1295 1294.20, I think is uh, the most recent quote. But we're up substantially. Remember, we got down as low as around 1150 uh, late last year. And of course, the Wall Street investment houses have been negative on gold since the beginning of the year. Uh, nobody has turned positive yet, which is a good news, and I, I don't think they're going to be turning positive for a while. But as big as the rise has been in dollars, it's even bigger in other currencies, with the lone exception of the Swiss franc. The Swiss franc, uh, gold is now downpriced in Swiss francs, but that's not going to last long. I think gold is going to recover everything it lost relative to the Swiss franc in short order. But I mentioned the stealth bear bull market, rather, that went on in 2014 with gold rising against every currency. Well, now it's rising against every currency, including the dollar. And I think we have a long way to go. A good example of the bull market in other currencies is in the Canadian dollar, which got plastered today. Uh, The Canadian dollar dropped uh, by more than one and a half percent. This is the lowest it's been in in years, kind of the lowest since 2009. And uh, the the impetus was some negative uh, industrial production numbers coming out of Canada. Of course, we've had even worse economic data coming out of the United States for months, and no one seems to care about that. Everybody is worried about the Canadian economy and how lower oil prices are going to impact it, yet nobody has those concerns about the U.S. economy, despite the fact that I believe that U.S. GDP is going to be lower in Canada, in the U.S., rather, in 2015 than it is in Canada. The, the consensus right now is for about 3.2% GDP growth in the U.S., Uh, and maybe two and a half or so in Canada. I think Canada is going to grow faster than the U.S. in in 2015. And in fact, the IMF just came out today and downwardly revised their growth estimates for the world by the most in three years, but upgraded what they thought was going to happen in the U.S. I think the IMF now thinks the U.S. economy is going to grow by 3.7%. What are they smoking there at the IMF? You know, they're a great contrarian indicator. I think what this likely means is that you can probably revise upward global growth, but revise downward U.S. growth, because I think the IMF is, they they probably have one of the worst forecasting records. They're very, very Keynesian uh, in the way of thinking, and so they obviously just believe this hype about the U.S. recovery. But the Bank of Canada is going to come out tomorrow. Uh, Maybe they're going to announce a rate cut. I don't know. Their rates are right now at 1%. Uh, They're still much higher than ours of zero. 
Uh, we couldn't even withstand 1%. But people are thinking maybe they'll ease or maybe they'll signal an easing bias. I don't know. But the Canadian dollar is getting clobbered. And the price of gold is rising in Canadian money. And if you look at the price, the Canadian dollar price of gold is now 1566 It was a huge move up today, at least maybe 25 30 Canadian dollars. Um, this is the highest we've been in a couple of years. The next resistance is 1600 which I think we could hit this week. Uh, the record high, all-time record high, was just over 1800 And we're almost there. I mean, we're less than 15% from a record high gold price in Canada. 15%. I mean, the record high in the U.S. was over 1900 And we're still only $1,300. we are miles away from a record high in dollars. But we're almost there in Canadian dollars. This shows you what's going on outside uh, the prism of the dollar. But, you know, if we make a record high in Canadian dollars, a record high in U.S. dollars is not going to be too far off. And, you know, despite this, if you look at Canadian gold mining companies, this shows you how negative the sentiment is because most Canadian gold stocks are still down 60, 70, 80 percent or more from their highs, even though gold is let down less than 15 percent. And if you think about it, you know, oil prices have plunged. Even in Canadian dollars, they've come down. So I think Canadian gold miners are going to boom. I think you're going to have a huge a boom in hiring and, and, and drilling. I mean, Canada is a major gold producer. You know, I think it's interesting, too, that Canada doesn't produce as much gold as the United States. The United States still produces more gold than, uh, than Canada, but not if you adjust for the population. We maybe produce 70, 80 percent more gold than Canada, but we're 10 times as large. So uh, the way it impacts the economy and probably... Canada has is in a better position to ramp up its gold production. In fact, Canadian gold production is maybe 20% or so higher than it was, let's say, in 2006, whereas U.S. gold production is maybe 20% lower. I mean, the U.S. has been lowering its production. In fact, back in 2006, America produced twice as much money as Canada and Mexico. And now we produce about the same amount of gold as Canada and Mexico. So our production has been declining, whereas production in other North American countries has been rising. But I think Canada is set to really ramp up production, giving the improvement in the the cost situation uh, for mining. And especially if I am right about the price of gold continuing to rise. And in fact, even if you get softening in the Canadian economy, as a result of a weakness in the oil price, I think the increase in gold production and gold mining is going to pick up the slack. We're not going to have that in the United States. We're going to have a reduction in the energy sector, but we're not going to have a corresponding increase in gold mining. So I think if the bearishness is, is unwarranted and resulting in a, a, a big decline in the Canadian dollar. Meanwhile, I think Canadian inflation, which their CPI was 1.9% uh, last year, uh, and I think it's going to be higher. I think Canadian inflation is going to take a jump because of this big drop in the Canadian dollar. You know, they, they can't export their inflation the way we do. And, you know, when the dollar declines, it doesn't go down against the Chinese yuan 
But when the Canadian dollar goes down, it does go down against yuan. And the Chinese still import a lot of Canadian products. Unlike us, they pay for them, uh, but they still import them. And now they're going to get a lot more expensive. So I think you're going to start to see sometime during 2015 an increase in CPI in, inf- in Canada. And Canada is going to have to raise rates. Right now, everybody is talking about rate cuts and a weak Canadian dollar. And I think people are setting themselves up uh, for some big losses when this currency turns around, because I think this mining boom is real. It hasn't even been started yet because no one believes it. Right. The price is rising. The cost of production is going down. But people are still in disbelief. But, you know, we get some more rally. We get a bigger rise. You know, that's how the market started last year. Last year, we had a big rise in the gold price from January through March. uh, And then it fizzled out. This time, I don't think it's going to fizzle out. I think we're going to have a stronger second half than first half. And I think that's going to be bullish for the Canadian economy. It's going to be bullish for the Australian economy. There, mining is even more important in Australia. The mining sector there, they produce, they, they, they have a greater total mine output uh, in Australia, gold output, than in Canada. And so I think these rising gold prices are going to be even more bullish So for Australia. But both the Australian dollar has suffered, too. It wasn't down nearly as much today as the Canadian dollar, but it has been falling. And I think uh, traders who are betting against the Australian dollar and the Canadian dollar, they're winning now, but I think they're going to lose big time. Uh, just like the people who were betting against the Swiss franc were winning for years until they got wiped out last week. Whatever they were winning, they lost that and then some. And, you know, it's interesting. I want to talk about this because it shows you how clueless uh, most Wall Street strategists are, people that are managing other people's money. Right. I, I did my uh, video blog the other day. And if you haven't uh, watched it, check it out on the YouTube channel about uh, China and what happened with Switzerland. And is this you know, a warning sign? Because the peg between the Swiss franc and the euro, I think, is small uh, when it's compared to the impact of the China peg, where it pegs both the Chinese yuan and the Hong Kong dollar to the U.S. dollar. This is much more significant. And I was speculating that I think that's the next big peg to go is in China. And I read an article today. This guy wrote it. It was a a columnist for Market Watch. And I saw a guy on CNBC with Rick Santelli. And both these guys were talking about the same thing, saying, hey, is the next peg to go going to be uh, the, the yuan peg to the dollar. And you got to listen to the guy from CNBC with Rick Santelli. Listen to what this guy says. Here's how clueless these guys are, because he acknowledges the same point as the guy who wrote this op-ed. He says, look, uh, uh, Switzerland was spending a lot of money trying to keep this, this currency ceiling on the Swiss franc to maintain this peg. And, you know, it was very expensive and they had to stop. And he says that it's also very expensive for China to maintain their peg. And as a result, he thinks they're going to stop. But then, right, he, he concludes that if they eliminate the peg, the yuan will devalue, depreciate. As the yen weakens, 
Who, does, who do you think is ruffling their feathers right now? Who do you think is a little upset about euro weakness and yen weakness? Oh, I don't know, a big export market like China. So a strong dollar hurts the Chinese. They're going to change that. The Chinese are going to unpeg to the yuan and unpeg to the dollar, and they're going to devalue it, and it's going to happen in 2015, 2016 at the latest. Right now, you've got the renminbi 6.2 6 to the right. dollar, I think 12, 13, 14. Like the yuan is going to be cut in half if they remove the peg. Now, how is that possible? Because remember, the Chinese, just like the Swiss, have a ceiling on their currency. They're preventing their currency from rising. The reason it was costing Switzerland so much to maintain the peg is because they had to buy all these euros. They had 500 billion in foreign reserves, the majority of which accumulated maintaining that ceiling on the Swiss franc. That was the cost, right? They had to keep printing Swiss francs. The cost was in their expanded balance sheet and ultimately in the diminishment in the purchasing power of their own citizens. That is the same cost that the Chinese are bearing. Their balance sheet is bigger. I mean, they're a bigger country than Switzerland, so per capita it's not bigger. But they have $4.5 trillion in foreign reserves. Those reserves were accumulated keeping the ceiling on, on the yuan, preventing it from going up. Right. So if you remove the peg, the yuan's not going to go down. It's going to go way up, just like the Swiss franc. How can this guy think that if you remove the peg, the yuan is going to drop? The peg is what's preventing it from rising. You know, if, if there was a floor underneath the yuan, then you could make that argument. But that's not what's happening because the Chinese have to keep buying dollars to prevent their currency from rising. If the market wanted a lower yuan, and the peg was preventing yuan from falling, China would have to be expending its foreign reserves, defending the floor. They would China would have to be selling dollars and buying back yuan to prevent the yuan from falling. That's not what it's doing. It's doing the opposite of that. It's doing exactly what Switzerland was doing to stop the franc from rising and to stop the euro from falling. So what China is doing is preventing their currency from rising and propping our currency up. If you remove the peg, the dollar tanks and the yuan goes up. Yet neither of these guys could figure this out. They think it's going the other way. Look, the only way that China could devalue its currency would be if it moved the peg, right? It would have to lower the peg, not eliminate it. They would have to lower the peg and, and fix the Chinese yuan at an even lower value than it currently is fixed. And what that would mean would mean it would be even more expensive for China. They would have to buy even more dollars to defend a, an even lower, an artificially lower exchange rate. Because money is going to keep pouring in to the yuan and they're going to keep selling dollars because eventually the peg is going to be removed, just like it was removed with the Swiss franc, and the dollar is going to tank and the Chinese currency is going to rise. But the point is, you have these guys, professional guys, supposedly smart guys, that can't figure this out. They think if they take the peg away, that the, the, the Chinese currency is going to collapse. No, it's the dollar that's going to collapse. The, the peg is propping our currency up. It's like you're holding a beach ball underneath the water. And the guy says, you're going to take your hands away from the beach ball, and the beach ball is going to sink deeper underneath the water. No, it's going to rise to the surface. You're, it's, it's your pressure that's keeping it submerged. You take your hands off and the ball is going to float to the top. This guy thinks it's going to drop like it's made of lead or something. I mean, how could you not understand the difference between a ceiling and a floor? Also, you know, moving from the sublime to the ridiculous, I want to 
uh, talk a little bit about this article I read today in the Wall Street Journal. Right, The title of the article is More Young Adults Stay Put in Biggest Cities. Lack of jobs elsewhere, tough mortgage standards play a role. And they one of the people they, they feature is this Amir Nader. Uh, and she graduated with a master's degree in acting. Right, So maybe, I don't know what she undergrad did, but her master's is in acting. And she has $190,000 of student loans. $190,000 borrowed to get a degree in acting. Now, first of all, the, the, the odds of being a successful actor or actress, I mean, it's very slim. I mean, it's almost like, you know, a, kid, a high school kid playing basketball getting drafted into the NBA. I mean, everybody and their brother and sister wants to be an actor or an actress. And most of them just end up waiting tables. I mean, there's a few that are really successful, uh, but there's so many people that, that that barely make a living and so many that don't make a living at all. So and when you borrow $190,000 hoping to be an actor or an actress, that's that's a really bad bet. <clears throat> but of course, you know, government guarantees all these loans, right? So this article mentions the fact that this young woman who's still... 31 years old, right? So I don't know how many, you know, when she graduated, doesn't mention. But she's trapped in New York because she's got this job answering telephones. And it's not even 40 hours a week job. I think it said she's working 35 hours a week answering telephones. So she's a receptionist at a nonprofit organization. But why is she at a nonprofit? Because according to, you know, the new Obama administration rules, if you work at a nonprofit for 10 years, they will forgive the unpaid balance on your student loans. So she borrowed so much money that she can't take a real job because if she takes a job in the private sector, she's going to have to wait 20 years for her loans to be forgiven. So instead, she if she just answers phones for 10 years that, you know, she'll she'll get her loans forgiven uh, in a shorter period of time. So. And whatever she's getting paid, it can't be much, right? She's just a receptionist. So how much can she be making? $10, 12 $15 an hour tops, right, to answer the telephone, right? Uh, she lives in New York City. She has two other roommates. So she's sharing an apartment with 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 with, with two other girls so or with ladies. And her, her share of the rent is about $1,000 a month. So I don't know. Maybe they have a two-bedroom. I can't. There's no way they got a three-bedroom for $2,000 a month. Uh, so maybe they have a small two-bedroom. Uh, so I don't know if she shares a bedroom or maybe one of the girls sleeps on a pull out, on a fold out sofa, but she's got $190,000 in debt on a master's degree. And she's basically trapped in a job as a receptionist because she has $190,000 in student loans, but she could have had her job as a receptionist without her master's degree. She could have had that job without her undergraduate degree. I mean, who even knows what her undergraduate degree is? Why is she um, a, a, a receptionist? answering phones. And that's not enough, you know, to, to, to pay her bills. So when she's not answering phones, she's waiting tables. So she's also working as a waitress, but she has to hold on to this nonprofit job. And she really would like to move to New Orleans, but she doesn't think she can get a nonprofit job there. So she's stuck because she needs the nonprofit to get out from under her student loans, which she never should have got underneath if it wasn't for the government. But think about this from a taxpayer perspective. We're going to forgive these loans, meaning you and me and all the taxpayers. So this young woman borrowed $190,000 from the U.S. government, basically, to get an acting degree. And now, because she works as a receptionist for 10 years, we're going to forgive that debt. 
I mean, was that really worthwhile? We basically paid $190,000 so that this woman can answer telephones for 10 years. Even though, who knows, maybe she could actually do something more productive. But because we loaned her $190,000 to get her acting degree, she has no choice but to answer telephones for 10 years. Even though she probably could have done that without a high school degree. This is the American workforce. How, I mean, how insane is this? And the article, this, New York, this Wall Street Journal article, never even points out the absurdity of borrowing $190,000 to get a degree in acting. And what is this acting degree going to do her in a non-acting career. And of course, I mean, most successful actors and actresses don't even have degrees. I mean, they just start out, you know, they, they catch a break, they work, I don't know, but most of them aren't professionally trained. Maybe they went, they, they might've had acting coaches, but did they actually major? How many of the top Hollywood stars have their master's degrees in acting? I mean, there's probably some, but the vast majority probably don't. But this is absurd to borrow all this money I mean, if you want to spend your own money, but to borrow it for the taxpayer to guarantee such a long shot investment and then to give them the opportunity, well, just just answer telephones. I mean, so any job that you get in a nonprofit, you can be a janitor, you can clean the toilets of a nonprofit for 10 years and you can have one hundred ninety thousand dollars worth of student loan forgiveness. Do we really want to pay our toilet cleaners that much money? And it's not just the student loan that they forgive, but the unpaid interest. Not just the principal. I mean, imagine what this what this adds up to. But her story is probably pretty familiar. There are people all around the country that have all this debt and have nothing and all they can do with their master's degrees are wait tables and answer telephones. I mean, this is and but they, they don't even point the, the absurdity of this out that we're guaranteeing these loans. And now President Obama is doing a State of the Union address tonight. I'll pro, I'll do a, a blog on it tomorrow. What does he want to do? He wants to make Free two years worth of college, right? So what I mean, yeah, just get more people to go to college to waste our money on worthless degrees. I mean, imagine how expensive college is going to be when the first two years are free, right? Because whenever the government reduces the cost, you think this woman would have borrowed one hundred ninety thousand dollars if she had to pay for it out of her own pocket? Of course not. And if she had to borrow the money based on her own ability to pay it back, you think any bank? in their right mind, would loan her $190,000 to get a master's degree in, in, in acting? Of course not. The only way these stupid loans are made is because the government was dumb enough to put the U.S. taxpayer on the hook. That's the only reason. This is not a fault of the free market. No free market would possibly produce this kind of insanity. This is the result of government central planning. Right? This is what Obama wants more of. Right? He wants to screw up the economy even more because the government hasn't already screwed it up enough. Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? 
If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies.